Aloha, Shervin here, and welcome to the waking hour. This is our moment in time to wake the fake up from the illusions that are holding us back from living in our full power. As Alvin Toffler said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read or write, but those who cannot unlearn the many lies that they have been conditioned to believe and seek out the hidden knowledge that they have been conditioned to reject. I invite you all on a journey of self-exploration where together we unlock the keys to living the best life ever. All right, today is the best day ever, and this is going to be probably my favorite conversation to date. Why? Because this is going to take me back to childhood. And when I met my guest that's on today on Wake the Fake Up, I literally transformed into my seven years young self. And so let me just break this down a little bit. I was a wild child and my life revolved around reptiles. And it still does to a certain extent. Most people know I have different forms of tree pythons in my house and all this crazy stuff. And we're going to get into some wild, wild stuff. So this is a super treat for myself and one of the most exciting days in a long time on Wake the Fake Up. I got Donald Schultz in the house. Donald Schultz is a dear brother. I met him through the Checkster. Paul Check called me one day and said, hey, you need to get up here and meet someone. As soon as we connected, the whole we tribed up immediately. We got so much, so many things in common. Donald, straight from Africa. It's so good to see your face. What's up, my man? How are you? Hey, so happy to speak to you. Um, and it's, it, it feels like a long time, but a short time. Um, so, so much has happened. So much to talk about. Like, I don't know where to begin. But um, really in a good place, man. Missing you guys, missing America, but, you know, living a, a weird adventure. And it's funny you say the, the seven-year-old thing. Both of my ex-wives are like your terminal adolescents. You know, you, you're a perpetual young child. And I'm like, is that bad? Like, you know, is it bad to be a seven-year-old sometimes? I don't think so. That means that you're just living in your imagination and, you know, this whole thing where we got to turn into, you know, left brain or we got to turn into mature adults. That's really a societal thing. You know, obviously there's got to be some structure, but with you, I, I immediately saw myself, you know, you had that um, aura about you, which created a reflection where I, I went directly back into childhood because of your excitement for things that I thought I was the only one excited for. You know, and so let me give everyone a little bit of background on who you are. You're a researcher, you're a filmmaker, you started to work with reptiles at age 13, and you were able to have an internship over at the Fitzman Snake Park, where you received sound schooling in herpetology. You also have a love for all kinds of dangerous activities, of course you do. And you love to base jump. You're a wingsuiter, commercial diving, film filmmaker. You're also a filmmaker for Shark Week. And I know right now I can see the wetsuit behind you and, and look at the great white shark on your sweater. You're chasing great white sharks along the eastern coast of Africa. Is that what's going on right now? You're, you are the definition of a berserker, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the I, I do Shark Week many years, and last year was with, you know, with the shutdown and everything, um, I missed out on a lot of work. And this year, it was like, we have one show, um, and I was like, I'm not going to rush. So basically driving from the points of Cape Town all the way up the eastern coast, chasing weather and white sharks. 
Um, and it's like endless summer kind of thing. And the cool thing is it's like the surf and the waves and everything, it like all goes hand in hand. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, myself and my dog are driving from the tip of Africa all the way to the border of Mozambique. And the goal is to find some white sharks because they, they're super misunderstood. Like even making the show, we know so, so little about them. We make massive assumptions. And what you said about like mirroring, I had a weird experience in the shoot with, with someone and I said, what am I but a projection of you? And so when you say you see a seven-year-old me, I'm just mirroring what is, you know, is here. So like when people see things and, you know, like it, it's a, the reality distortion field, like when I'm out in the bush, everything works, you know, and it works easily. Like animals come, weather comes, friendships come. It's like for me being in the city or being in, in society in like structured meet at eight, you know, we need a three week plan. Um, the, the magic doesn't happen. Like, right. like the, the flow can't happen. You don't say you're surfing at 6 p.m. There's going to be an awesome wave. You're like, hey, I'm going to go see what the water's doing and then jump in the water and then hopefully something happens. Um, but that's like pretty much where I'm at. We're, we're chasing sharks. Um, we saw some sharks today, two white sharks, went for a dive, saw a pajama shark, which is the shark. And if you watch my octopus teachers, the one that murders the, the, the octopus. Um, well, it doesn't murder it, but it, it hurts it. And so we saw three <laughs> sharks today. And then we, we get on the tail of the sardine run, which is the biggest migration in the world of biomass. And, and sardines start here and they go all the way up to Mozambique. And so we just like following the feeding frenzy and, and see what we see along the way. This is unbelievable. And this entire experience that you're having, is this something that you've done before in terms of the sardine run? And just tell me a little bit how you got into white sharks and how this whole thing is, you know, how, how are you comfortable? Because anyone listening to this, we see these white sharks, we get the beauty of it by now, okay? We're not just stigmatized by the movie Jaws and stuff like that. But everyone I know is terrified of white sharks. I mean, people that know that I surf, that I go into the ocean, they're like, aren't you scared of sharks? Which is just so absurd in, in so many ways. But you're actually in an area that is known to have white sharks. You're chasing white sharks and you're getting in the water with them? Yeah, I mean, the, the best, and I, like I've, I've toyed with this a lot because I've got some stories of mambas and cobras, but those are better to experience. Come out and see those for yourself because that's like a, a whole different thing. But the Dalai Lama was asked, is a random jump number generator conscious? And he said, if you think it is, it is. And so it is with sharks and snakes and elephants and that. They literally mirror the same amount of consciousness you give them. And white sharks, I mean, we've spent the last three weeks up and down the coast. I started in Durban, down to Cape Point, you know, a bunch of like hot spots for white sharks and there's no sharks around. And there's a bigger story in that. But everywhere we, that we went, the locals are like, okay, so when you jump in the water, you want to be super quiet and you want to sneak around and not, not, not to not be eaten, but to not scare the sharks away. Like white sharks are terrified of us. And it's like, I have empirical data that shows this. I mean, the fact that they eat a couple of people now and again, comparatively, if you compare it to snake bites or anything like that, it's statistically you know, almost impossible. The stuff that we do increases the risk dramatically, but at the same time, you can manage that. And, and like when you see an animal like a shark or a mambo or an elephant recognize you and you recognize it, it's a form of telepathy that you can't train or do or anything. It's just you, you're literally recognizing the amounts of intelligence in it that you can, like the upper limits. And when you do that, you see they fucking sentient beings that think and feel and, and respect. Like, you know, they'll, they'll like, 
you know, have boundaries and if you cross them, they'll react. And then you have boundaries. If they cross it, you react. And it's a super easy, you know, sort of equilibrium to hit in the wrong conditions. You know, we're diving bad visibility today. And even then there's ways to make it safer. Um, nothing's completely safe. You go on a scuba dive, you have a stroke. Is it the shark's fault? <laughs> you're, you're destined to die. Yeah? Um, so, you know, I'm always like, I should have died many years ago. I got bitten by a snake. I was on a ventilator. I should have died. Everything after that's crazy. Wow. So like, thank God if I die by a shark attack, I mean, it's bad for sharks, but statistically I'm like, it's way better than dying in a car accident or, you know, embolism or something that you have, you can't see coming. Um, but at the same time, you can't live with the like, well, this is going to kill you. You know, we're all going to die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have to. I, I'm it's with a, a of life, you know? So, I'm with you. I'm, yeah, well, I'm with you on what you're the saying. White, the white sharks, I mean, any animal, when you look at them, the more you recognize in them, the more the, they wake up. And they're not waking up. You're you're waking up. <laughs> you know, you're just actually seeing what they have. Um, and it's trippy, man. It's 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 weird. That's beautiful uh, way of putting into the experience. You know, we've you know we've created some kind of dark enigma to some of these beautiful sentient beings especially when it comes to snakes and sharks because they are so ferocious you know they are so um they play in that shadow world right because you don't see them and one bite or one this and all of a sudden it takes you into another world it's so scary kind of like spiders you know and i still have a you know a little bit of a interesting energy towards spiders so you and i met on the heels of an anniversary for me so i don't most people that know me close they know that i was bit by a rattlesnake october 4th 2017 and i went through a very very interesting you know psychedelic experience from the rattlesnake bite you know it bit me in my hand it was a juvenile rattlesnake I was picking white sage in Laguna Beach when I got bit, <laughs> you know, and I was almost unconsciously picking that sage. And, you know, just a lot of uh, synchronicities with that experience. And it was my ability to go into a meditative state after the bite that I think really helped me out in terms of how I was able to glide through that on a spiritual level and just on an anatomic level with my health. And a year later, a rattlesnake showed itself up almost to the day and, and lunged at me at my foot over in Hidden Meadows right next to Paul Checks. And, uh, and then you and I met, you know, right after that. And so it's interesting. I, I want to know your experience with your rattles with, with your it wasn't a, you got bit by a mamba, right? Or a rattlesnake. Oh, no, you got bit by a rattlesnake. Okay, okay. Three three mamba bites and and two serious rattlesnake bites. Um, but the rattlesnake, it, it's yeah, that that was the worst. Okay, so rattlesnakes they they drop in a hemotoxin and a neuro, neurotoxins in there, and it stops your blood from coagulating. Now I can go through my whole entire experience, but let me ask you your rattlesnake bite. Can you tell me exactly what happened and how you reacted to it? Well, sure. I mean, I had one rattlesnake bite, which was an archetypical hemotoxin bite. Like my finger just dissolved off. Nothing too like dramatic, like very textbook. And then I got bitten uh, years later by a Southern Pacific rattlesnake, which is a snake that bit you and is in Southern California. And it's a really, it's the hottest rattlesnake. It's the most venomous rattlesnake in North America. 
And it's the most diverse venom. They can have neurotoxic, hemotoxic in this you know, single population across from each other. It's like they're the perfect gnarly venom. Um, and as a result, anti-venom doesn't work as well. But I was bitten by that snake in South Africa, which was one of my snakes I was working with at a lab. And it bit me and I woke up three days later on a ventilator with a urinary catheter in the fetal position. And I was like, oh, fuck. I'm like, that was close. Like the fact that I can say that was close, I'm like, wow. So the following day- Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. So this is a Southern California, what, what, what was this, a red diamond? Or Western? Southern Pacific. Southern, yeah, Southern Pacific. Yeah, so the gnarly little one from San Diego and LA and that, um, it, it was probably 1999. And rattlesnakes are actually available in South African pet shops and that. And so I had it and it bit me and the story goes that a friend of mine was driving to my house and saw my car parked outside the hospital with the door open. And so he ran inside and asked what happened. And they said, the guy came in here and collapsed. And so they found where I was. And basically I walked into this, I found out weeks later, walked into the hospital, wrote down what bit me, wrote down the doctor that treated this rattlesnake bite um, and collapsed. And they chewed me on the ground, put me on an ambu bag and then drove me an hour away, put me on a ventilator. And for two days, I was totally unresponsive, nothing like, and then on the third day, the doctor was like, hey, if I could give him some South African anti-venom. And half an hour later, I was awake. Um, but every time I fell asleep, I'd stop breathing. And I can still hear the sound of the ventilator like kicking in and beeping. And after a day, I could breathe by myself, extubated, and then had retrograde amnesia for about three months, just deleted my memory. <laughs> and the things would come back sporadically. But unlike this rattlesnake bite, that was painful and sore, this wasn't sore. This just switched me off. Like it, it was like a mamba where it just hit a button and three and a half days later, you're back in reality and all the shit's happened that you had no control over. And so that, that was the point in my life where I'm like, oh shit, everything's gravy. Like anything after this is a bonus because there's a world that I didn't make it. Um, any number of things that could have happened that, that I could have not made it. it. It's such a dynamic experience. You know, what you're saying right now is just like, I'm getting chills and waves of euphoria at the same time. There's a thin line between, you know, fear and love and all those things. And I remember when I got bit, I, I just kind of surrendered in that moment and it took me on a wild ride and I got bit on my finger as well, on my index finger. And there's no give there. And I remember it felt like, a sledgehammer was coming out of my finger and then all of a sudden I was going into waves of just psychedelia and yeah. um to hear this from you I I'm I'm curious do you think this was a specific pharmacological experience or was there some kind of dynamic to it on how your body received the venom you know is it um yeah, you know, snakes, what we found is just, just last year, they realized like snakes have two different types of venom sometimes, one in the right gland, one in the left gland. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you? Two guns, have a shotgun and a handgun. You know? and, yeah. and so some of this stuff's making sense. Plus, venom changes. It changes on what they eat and all that. So that's the problem with anti-venoms is they made against a specific venom. Yeah. So unless you have a venom, you can't make the anti-venom. Um, but for me, the, the, the Western Diamondback rattlesnake was very much like if you watch Natural Born Killers, and he gets bitten by the rattlesnake. And I, the big thing that I took away from that was it was like I was sucking a coin for three months. All I could taste was metal. Yeah. Um, and how fucking sore it was for months and how my hands smelled like super bad as decomposed. Whereas the, the Southern Pacific rattlesnake, a shaman in Peru said to me, I was like, yeah, I was in a coma for three days. He's like, where did you go? 
I'm like, well, no, I was in the hospital. He's like, no, you went somewhere. I've been like, oh, shit. And so Native Americans believe people who get bitten by rattlesnakes are instantly shaman. They're like, that's your rite of passage. There you go. Done. You know, like, but that for me, I'm like, wow, I had three days of like hype meditation um, on snake venom, like on, you know, my body stopped, like my body gave up. And, and so I think it's, you know, sometimes a sequela, the mamba, mamba bite was very much the same way. It's an elegant venom. Like other venoms are sore, like Gila monsters fucking sore and makes you shit yourself and all that. But like mamba venom is like hitting one button in you, but it's your reset button. And you can feel your body just shutting down. And it's like, that for me is, it's not even painful. It's, it's just like a, you, you, and I think part of the reason I've done well with snake bites is I'm like, okay, cool. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. I'm like, if I don't have anti-venom. I'm like, okay, cool. There's no points in freaking out, but let's see where this goes rather than like, oh, I'm going to die. Um, yeah, yeah. Which obviously everyone's doing right now. Oh, I'm going to die. I'm like, yeah, you're always going to die. Just, yeah. Yeah. So it's, well, it's funny where we go to, we go to those uh, extremities because it's the unknown and fear kicks in and then we go into panic. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, why we were able to cope with this instead of going into the fight flight, which turns on the adrenaline, gets the heart pumping, pumps the venom over everywhere, gets into the organs. I knew that. So I, I slowed my breath down to like, you know, three, four breaths a minute. And I sat down while people around me were panicking. And I, and I knew, and I, I, I it's interesting you brought up the metal because I, I immediately within like 10 minutes, my mouth tasted like metal. And it was yeah. a very, very trippy experience to like to go into that, knowing that this venom is in me. And so I, yeah. I've been around, uh, you know, me- these types of medicines for a while. You know, combo frog medicine, which is the Amazonian tree frog. You know, they're burning that peptide into your body, and then also bufo alvarius toad medicine, which is more of a psychedelic. And I know that th- th- this is kind of like, you know, I don't want to say the V word, but it's nature's V. You know, it's how our bodies react to a toxin or to a poison which develops antibodies and takes us into the next world and I, i'm with you on the native american correlation because you know you get bit by a rattlesnake and survive that's a rite of passage right and then it's a shedding it's a metamorphosis and then you can go into a whole new kind of perspective and new initiation and that's what life is right it's we yeah. go through initiations and then we transition into the next one one of the things with snakes, and you mentioned sharks too, like Jung said that, you know, the, the ocean represents um, our unconscious and then the, well, yeah, and then the shark or whale represents our subconscious. And that's why it's so scary. It's like, it's our, our darkest shadows manifest, you know, and it's, and when it tears you apart, it's the same kind of thing. But with snakes, if you look at mythology and that, they're fucking everywhere. You know, spiders are represented, but frogs are bit, like they, they're here, but everything is all snakes and a lot of, you know, cultures revere snakes, um, you know, Hindi culture, especially, and it's, it's, you know, any poisons a drug, any drugs are poison, just depending on the dose, you know, as this with snake venom, you know, yeah. it can elicit a massive reaction from you. But I think, you know, certain venoms, just like Cambo, stimulates an immune response. Like I, I feel healthy and, and as poorly as I've treated my body over the years, like I feel really good despite having like major snake bites. You know, if I'd had major other incidents, I don't think it's it's, it's as it, it didn't exercise my immune system as well. I think my immune system has been challenged and is still good. Oh, well done, man! I th- I think that's amazing, and that's a that's a way of looking at our innate immune system and how we regulate and everything that we do. I mean, if you look at herbology, from therapeutic herbs to the basic house herbs to you know poison ivy. 
they're all toxic. They all have a toxic yep. reaction in the body. That's how they work. You know, it's just at what yep. level of toxicity and are we able to cope with it and sit in that? And that's everything about today is like, how, how much are we able to sit in the pain? How much are we able to sit in the fear? Because, you know, as you know, everything is about numbing you and taking you out of the present. Everything, you know, from, you know, the mass media to, far, to today's modern medicine and all that stuff. How do we comfort you from the pain and distract you from the pain when what you're talking about? I love what you just said, by the way, about the snakes and the sharks being our shadow, right? That's yeah. that is it. And going into and that shadow. shadow. Yeah, shadow defines a light. You can't just have lights. In filmmaking, if you have a, a blown out shot, there's fuck all there. You need shadow for definition. And it's like, what is society is like shadow doesn't exist. And it's like, but that's <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And in the shadow is things like sharks and snakes and you know, subconscious and unconscious. It's like the, the interesting stuff's in the shadows, not in the light. Yeah. Well said. Dark way. Yeah. <laughs> When I got to the hospital, my hand had turned into a grapefruit and the there was, you know, 20 doctors. So I went to Hogue Hospital here in Newport Beach. There was like 20 nurses and doctors waiting for me. They thought this was the best thing ever because they haven't had a rattlesnake bite in a while. It was like a whole theater show. And here I come in, they're they're pulling me in and I'm in like full, you know, I'm sitting upright. I'm in like samadhi position and prayer. I'm listening to Lakshmi. I had Lakshmi playing on my phone. It was the best ever. And they're like, who's this guy? And they eventually they put anti-venom in me. And what was interesting is the anti-venom had thimerosal in it. And I suffered for at least almost six to nine months after that experience because directly to the thimerosal. If you don't know what thimerosal is, it's a they call it an organic mercury compound. And I basically got mercury poisoning from the anti-venom. Which, and, and, and importantly, it, it was IV. Yeah, like it was everyone IV. Everyone thimerosal IM in vaccines and such, but this is intravenous. Like this is this is as direct as you can go. Yeah, and, and I had mercury reactions and you know tremors and muscle twitching and confusion for the next six to nine months and it was hectic to say the least and then you and i met and you're like wow you know we don't that's not something that we believe in that's not what we're doing so give it the audience a little bit about your background what you're doing with rattlesnake venom and other other snake venoms as too as well i really want to commend you on that that's just amazing stuff well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the, the anti-venom story like, goes back to working at the snake park in Durban, and they became famous for making a mamba anti-venom, which in South Africa is a big deal. Um, but it was always something that was like this unreachable goal, anti-venom. It's like making a vaccine. Like, go, go make a vaccine quick. It's, it's mind-blowing. And I worked in veterinary medicine as a technician for 10 years, treated a lot of rattlesnake bites. I worked with snakes. I worked like just gathered a lot of knowledge. And one day someone said to me, why can't you make antivenom from king snakes? And I went through the mental checklist and I was like, holy shit. I'm like, you totally can. I'm like, it's in like before there were limitations. Now it's possible. King, king so snakes, like, king snakes in, in domestic US or king cobra? Yeah, exactly. No, king snakes, like actual king snakes. Okay, king, um, king snakes have a substance that can break down rattlesnake venom, right? Because they're immune exactly. to rattlesnake bites. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, then that's what I call king snakes. King cobra is the same thing. But the, the before it was like you couldn't get enough blood, you couldn't keep enough snakes. And I was like, with all of the advances in veterinary medicine and science, I'm like, it is possible. Um, 
So I like, sort of researched for a year and a half and then found a paper by the Department of Defense in 1983 doing an ED50 study. So taking king snake blood, mixing it with the different rattlesnakes, injecting mice and seeing how, how long they survive. And some of the, like, the eastern king snakes in that were insanely resistant. Others were like good resistant. So essentially started raising VC capital to do a trial in dogs. Because so I'm like, if the, the math was if one king snake eats one rattlesnake, and the rattlesnake lights up and there's footage of him being like bitten with all of its venom and the king snake still doesn't die, then the king snake, its body volume can treat one rattlesnake bite, one full rattlesnake bite. So basically one king snake, if you exsanguinate it, you'd get one dose or one treatment. If you had 10 king snakes and took 10%, you could make one dose of antivenom to treat one bite in an animal, because animal doesn't matter, dog, chicken, whatever, it's one dose of venom, one antivenom. Yeah. And so that's, that's feasible, that's easier than keeping horses. So the current system is you have a shit ton of snakes, you milk them, you inject horses for a year, you collect the horse antibodies, um, and then you purify them, you give them to people. Thimerosal makes you able to make it dirtier, essentially it's like less of a process, at least in my understanding. Well, why, are they putting, why are they putting the thimerosal in there? What is their reasoning? I mean, I, I have my opinions, but... And vaccines, like in, in my experience, it's like, so the, the process can be dirtier. It's basically a disinfectant. Yeah. Um, and that's well, they use so the early the, the Fort Dodge antivenom was stopped produced because it had thimerosal, and then Crofab came along and had less like trace amounts, they call it right. Yeah, but then as a result, your maximum dose of antivenom from Crofab is 18 vials that was on their website and magically disappeared. You see reports constantly of eight year old kids now getting 100 vials, 75 vials, so like four times the maximum dose, so four times the maximum dose of thimerosal. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people, it's not scientific, but people like you and other like snake bite survivors and they're like, yeah, I was fucked up afterwards. I'm like, that wasn't necessarily the snake bite. Like you have after effects, but not the, you know, one lady said to me, it was like, oh, mine couldn't click into gear. It was like a clutch was slipping. And she was like very clean. She, you know, you know, very in tune with the body. And she's like, this isn't the snake bite. Like I know, I know what the snake bite felt like. This was different. Yeah. Um, it's electrical and neurological. It's electrical and ne neurological issues, which is exactly what mercury does. It fragments the cell's ability to communicate. It cross the, crosses into the myelin sheath and creates, you know, like almost multiple sclerosis type, you know, symptoms and Lyme's disease symptoms and all of those things. It was unbelievable. Dude, I was sick for a while. It's, you yeah. Know, yeah. Keep, keep going. <laughs> Thimerosal in the lab, you have to wear gloves and a mask and all that. But when you inject it, it suddenly becomes safe. And I'm like, I, I don't know. So, so our antivenom, we went through a research process and, and ELISA testing, and we stumbled on the fact that pythons are very resistant to, to even rattlesnake venom, but a, a variety of venoms. And the, the thinking behind it is they get eaten by things like cobras and other snake eating snakes. So they have a ridiculous resistance till they get bigger. So we formulated an antivenom with boa constrictor. Uh, reticulated python, ball python, and king snake. So the idea was to have like South America, North America, Africa, and Australia. And so like you have a, a big mix of, of animals, so you cross all the antibodies. And what you do is you take 10% of the snake's blood, you centrifuge it for five minutes, you heat it for half an hour, it's antivenom. Wow, <laughs> that's it? And I can do it in the back of my truck um, because the antibodies like IgG, uh, which is what horses have, very similar to our antibodies. That's why we freak out to have anaphylaxis. Snakes have IgY, um, which means like if the antibody looks like this, this little crystallization portion is either like reduced or gone. So it's just binding sites. Yeah. So you can take 
plasma and injects into mammals and works. Um, so we did a 60 dog study in San Diego and I, I, I you know, like San Diego because the snake is the one that did us really variable venom, but pretty consistent in bites. We only had one red rattlesnake bite, the rest were, were Southern Pacific's and symptoms from, you know, not being able to breathe, to blown up heads to like one was bitten on the tongue and we treated 58 dogs. They all survived. Um, and you know, Amazing. it was one of those things where we can make anti-venom inexpensively for dogs in the States, but the market's not there for humans because anti-venom is not a hot ticket item. And eight people die in America each year, which is not a lot comparatively. But in third world countries, you know, a person dies every three minutes from snake bites. So the idea is make a cheap anti-venom or inexpensive anti-venom that doesn't have a high reaction and basically you can make it in the field. So, so that's what we've done. But the, T- typical the, supply and demand thing. It's typical supply and demand, especially here in the states. And let me, let me ask you: that there, a lot of people in India, right? Are yeah. they they have a high death rate over there? And is that because it's elderly and children, or there's just a high populace of cobras in you know metropolitan areas? It's a combination. So, like in the tropical areas, it's way worse. And then coffee, tea, sugar, rice plantations are like snake hotbeds, you know, and people walk around barefoot and that. So, often, like that's a high amount of people. And then, like where we live, there's snakes everywhere. And the fact that there aren't more bites baffles my mind and speaks to the consciousness of snakes because there's so many snakes. But, like, I've been bitten on the bottom of my foot because I walk around barefoot. It's, it's unavoidable. In Africa, it's usually ladies collecting firewood and kids playing around at home. Usually, like when men go out to work, they put on boots and pants, and that, and that stops a lot of the bites. Um, what What are the yeah, main yeah. snakes? What are the main snakes over there? Is that that you could get bit by? Uh, where we are, the ones that do the most biting are spitting cobra and and puffeder, and they're both really cytotoxic. So it's like very similar to the rattlesnake bite, except it makes the cells destroy instead of like making the blood thin. But the problem is. If a mamba bites someone that's an hour and a half to the hospital, a mamba can kill in one hour. Um, and then with a full bite from mamba, there's 100% mortality without antivenom or ventilator. And the first hour is the golden hour. Once you burn those neurons, then you have to be on the ventilator for three to five days until you regrow all that shit so you can start breathing by yourself again. And there's no ventilator. So they won't give antivenom to our community because they're scared of the reaction. Um, but they're happy with people dying on the way to hospital to get the medicine. And you don't, you know, you drive an hour and a half, you're not sure that they have medicine. Um, wow. And the way it works where we are, you can't even go directly to the ER. You have to go to a local clinic and get a referral. So you can wait, you know, four or five hours to see a doctor in the clinic an hour and a half away. What, what, so why is it, what is this bureaucracy nonsense? What, how, how come it's so upside down? Uh, man, I don't know. <laughs> okay, like, all right. We, we, it, it's like it, it's so it's it, the the problem's so massive, and like the solution is is really pretty simple. But you know what I've realized: everything moves so slowly. Like it, it, at least in my point of view, in, in some parts of Africa, there's no interest in saving lives. Like there's no interest in in stemming the the death of people. Um, and that's like something I've had to come to terms with because yeah, it's, it's just so the fa- life is. The, the, yes. the value of life. So that, that's interesting because we're, we're going to be heading out to you and doing an African trip and, and all that stuff. I can't wait. But the consciousness over there is that there's not a lot of value on human life. Did you feel that intrinsically? Yeah, because, um, you know, when COVID hits, um, there was, we got 500 million rand, which I don't know what that is in dollars, but it's a lot of money. 
And I went and spoke to one of the Indunas boss, who's like the head man. I was like, how's it going? He's like, I've got 10 food parcels for like 30,000 people. He's like, how do you split 10 food parcels among 30,000 people? And then, you know, afterwards we find out like everyone was making money off of PPE and, you know, masks and this and that. So like that was just a like further illustration. The anti-venom thing, you know, it's, it comes down to drug companies and making money. And they're like, it's only a hundred billion dollar company. We want a billion dollar company. And it's like, well, you know, I still think that it's possible to do inexpensive. Like the fire department shouldn't make money, you know, C-Rescue shouldn't make money. Um, you know, snake removal and anti-venom shouldn't be a, a monetary decision um, like it is in the States. Like people have died in America refusing anti-venom because they can't afford it. And I'm like, that's not, that's not medicine. That's like highway robbery. That's like pay this money or you die. Yeah, it's poverty conscious, scarcity mentality, and it's typical business. Business, it seems to overshadow our our own divine human self right it's it's just really crazy and we, how we've lost the the order of what really matters and the business to everything is has changed how we all show up for people and what how we place value and i think that's 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 the beauty of people like you that are living in it like it's 500 years ago and that's you know i always say the quote we've forgotten what we've forgotten so i just want to Again, thank you for helping us remember who we truly are. That's just the, one of the most beautiful aspects that I see in you. And that's why you take me back to my childhood self is because I get into these imaginary modes before the burden of the modern mechanistic world comes in and overshadows everything. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that. You're so welcome. I had a moment about a year and a half ago um, where I woke up, I rolled myself a cigarette, and I cooked myself some coffee on a fire. And I was sitting smoking and it hit me like really hard that I felt exactly the same in Los Angeles with a house and a car and this and that as I did in the bush. And I'd always thought that my ancestors or my were stupid, like weren't conscious. And I'm like, they were way more conscious with me. They knew what the weather meant. They knew what rain, what rain meant and rain was coming and like different kinds of fires. I'm like, really, we've gone to sleep and, and like waking up. And part of that's just being, you know, in the bush with your, your, that's my alarm to speak to you. <laughs> um, so yeah, like being in the bush and being grounded and being like having elephants as neighbors and hearing hyenas at night, it's, it's not anything new for us. It's actually something that we've had for a long time. We've just, we've just forgotten it. You know, we've gone used to hooters and, you know, car horns and, and sirens and shit. It's, it's, that's, that's the abnormality. Yeah, our innate, um, I would say epigenetic code, which we now know our health is dictated by our surroundings and our environment and how we are evolving through that has kind of reversed in terms of what we think we hold value to today, which is, you know, this modern technology. And yes, there's a lot of beautiful information that's shared um, and we have access to so many things, but our primordial force, like what you just said right there, sitting on in the bush, by the fire, hearing all of these species around you, what is that doing to your immune system? What is that doing to your consciousness? How are you remembering your your past and being able to connect to the environment? That's survival. And that's what allows you to have access to things that we are that lay dormant in our souls. And I and I think that's why, you know, we we find so many people now they're going out out to the jungles 
they're going down to South America, they're going to Peru, they're going to these places and they're having these experiences and then they come back and, you know, they're enlightened in, on some capacity. At that point, it's like, okay, what do they do with it? How do we, how do we operate with it? So, yeah, yeah. What, what do you have on your horizon that's just, you know, you're so thrilled about right now? What's going on right now that you're, you're looking forward to and you're participating in? I mean, the antivenom our doctor is stuck in Nepal. So we found a, a human doctor that catches cobras, which is like a nice double talent. And he, he treats a lot of snake bites. So he was going to come out and start our research at a, at a hospital, but he's stuck. He actually just had, had Corona and now they're locked down. And, and so we're waiting for him to come out. Till then, it's the sardine run. is like, it's really astounding how beautiful and incredible that is. And then, you know, once I get done, it goes into winter year, which is like, kind of an interesting time because the days are short and everything gets dry and there's big fires and that. So there's a, a thing called, now it's called Enki's calendar. Um, it was previously known as Adam's calendar. I've been there a few times. I want to go explore around there. because so it's like Anunnaki Stonehenge thing. And the weird synchronicity is my dad was born there. Um, Jock of the Bushveld, there's a movie about a dog that was, that used to live there. And it's the same dog I have. And like my seven-year-old self, the thing that like woke me up to this lifestyle was a movie called Jock of the Bushveld. Um, the original one, which is like a man with his dog go to Barbertson to seek their fortune and they have a bunch of adventures. And like the music defined me, the filmmaking defined me, the animals like defined me. Um, so basically go and look at this Enki's calendar up in Barberton um, with a new critical eye because there's pyramids there. There's a horror stone, there's a sphinx, there's like a whole bunch of like really interesting stuff. Plus my dad, you know, my dad was from there. So that's, that's it. Chase sardines, you know, and then end up at a, an Anunnaki ruin somewhere. <laughs> that's not a bad reality you got for yourself. You're chasing one of the largest migrations of animals or species in Africa. Following that, there's sharks, great whites that are probably present and all that stuff. You have, you know, snakes everywhere. And now you're going to go visit a, a wonder of this world, which is Anunnaki connection. I mean, that's kind of a, a almost like a dream reality and almost a movie, you know, we've created that into like, this is a movie, right? And we've almost, you know, it's interesting because I think about people out there, they'll hear this and because it's, it's almost like a movie, they've almost been desensitized to what this actually means, right? Because they've experienced it in film or on TV or something like that. But if they can separate themselves from that false, because that's a false construct, right? A movie and all that stuff that's not real, it's it's just their yeah. their mind has seen it in some type of visual capacity, but they haven't they haven't actually experienced it. What you're talking yeah. about right now, if you can separate it as the illusionary field and really what it is, my God, what a what a life! <laughs> and it's, you know, it's about being like present. Like with, with Shark Week, you know, working on Shark Week, there's one thing that people don't experience: that's smell. The smell of the fish and the smell of the seals and the smell of everything. And for me, I'm like, I can't see a shark without thinking of a smell. Um, so it's, um, sorry, I'm uh, stopped. There we go. Um, and, and with the filmmaking, it's like, it's a big debate I had on this last year. It's like the difference between a documentary and a movie. And a movie follows a script. The documentary follows a story. And I, I really want to make documentaries because they're not as neat. They're not as tidy. 
but they're authentic. You know, movies have a, we know how it's going to end. Documentaries for me at least, it's like, I have no fucking clue how this is going to end. I just want to see, I just want to see it through. Um, and then, yeah, for people that, that being present, like, you know, people, like they, they live in the, this fake reality space. And it's like, for me, it's a tool to inspire people to go do this stuff, but by no means is a replacement for the thing. Like the camera is only seeing 16 by nine, but there's shit happening everywhere and there's stuff flying at you that really that's the best I can do, but it's still like pales in comparison to what, what these things really are. Um, so yeah, I'm like, it, it is a dream, right? Like the, the, if, if everything's a lie, anything is possible. So when I was a kid, I wanted to work with animals and fly. I'm like, okay, I've done both. Now what else? And it's, and it's not like a check, check thing. I'm just like, the world is so viable at the moment. You can do anything you want. You just have to want to do it. And yeah, that's been like the, the last couple of years, good and bad. Like the downs and the ups have been, you know, hyper-realistic, like, like super saturated. I think it's fun. Yeah, that's beyond fun. It's it's a life worth remembering. It's a life worth living. What it, besides the snake bite that you have? What are some of the hairier moments, the scarier moments that you've had out there? I mean, is there anything out there that you're like, holy shit, like this is this is hectic, you know? Yeah, the, the elephant thing was bad. Um, the which thing? Know, we 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 fixed an elephant in Kenya. It got hit by poacher's darts. And like, it took an hour and a half to do surgery and it was in the sun and the elephant wasn't waking up and it was kind of stressful, which was for a BBC show. And basically, eventually got the elephants up, but the crew had walked closer and the elephant charged us. And I ran away, like with everyone else. And I looked and the guy points the gun at me and my AK-47 in my face. I'm like, shit. And I looked behind me and our cameraman fell in front of the elephant. And I was like, oh, shit, he's dead. Like he's that that that's like he's for sure dead. I'm like, but if this guy shoots the elephants, not only is it gonna suck, the elephant's gonna then kill all of us because now we've hurt it, you know. So I ran up to the elephant and I got between the elephants and the cameraman and I put my finger between its eyes and I stopped it and I was like, get the fuck out of here. And the elephant, like we slid and our dust hit each other. It was really comical. And the elephant's like eyes were really big and then like kind of took a big sigh and turned around and walked away. And, and afterwards, like it felt gnarly at the time, but seeing the video afterwards, like that really, people like, how did you know it was going to stop? I'm like, I didn't know it was going to stop. I just didn't want it to get shot. Um, like, because that would have, I'd have been way more traumatized by that than anything else. Um, so that, that afterwards felt really gnarly. Um, I got lost, lost at sea last year with a white shark and a, and a tiger shark. That kind of scared me um, a little bit. And yeah, because it's, it's like being lost at sea is, is all fucking games until you realize like you may be super fucked. And you were, yeah, lost, we're, you were lost at sea with a white shark and a tiger shark? What? what, what? Yeah, I'll, I'll show you the footage of the tiger shark. We didn't get any footage of a white shark, but we're doing a scout dive to like 150 feet or so. And we got to the bottom and the visibility was like super bad. And I saw the biggest shark I've seen in my life like in that kind of conditions. And I swam up to it. And until I got about three feet from it, I was pretty sure it was white shark. Its tail was as big as me. And we only had like nine, eight foot visibility. So I hauled ass after it so it would know that I was aware of it and like it wouldn't come back or at least wouldn't like feel like it could just do its own thing. And as it turned to me, I saw stripes on the side. So it was a huge tiger. The place is called Tiger Reef. And then came up to a bunch of other sharks and it got to the surface. And the diver I was with, it was like, did you see the great whites? I was like, no, no, there's a tiger shark. She's like, no, there's a great whites. I was like, no, 
I also thought it was a great white. So I'm like, it's definitely going to tiger shark. And then we watched our boats leave because um, there were only two of us diving and it headed in the wrong direction for about 20 minutes. And so <laughs> we went through the whole like lost at sea thing, like took our BCs off inflated, then try to get the guy's attention. The condition sucked and eventually he came back. Um, but I showed the dive I was with the footage of the tiger shark. And she's like, no, that's definitely not the shark. I saw there was, there was a white shark there too. So it's like bad visibility, lost at sea, one definite monster tiger shark and one potential white shark. And that's when I was like, shit, um, you know, this would suck to like go out like this, but also uh, again, better than embolism. The, the thing about the tiger shark, right, is that what makes them dangerous is they'll just bite, they'll bite, right? And that's different than a white shark, which is a little bit more apprehensive. Is that, is that right? Well, shot. I had a few tiger sharks like chew on the back of my head, and, uh, and like the, the video is funny because they come in gently. I mean, bear in mind they bite through sea turtles, so there's a level of intelligence that they're not just biting your head off. But I've had a few like kind of come on the back of me, and, and you feel them nuzzling the back of your neck, and you turn around. There's a tiger shark, and it's like they they sneaky. They love coming from the back, um, but they do it in like slow labrador motion it's very weird um whereas like bull sharks come in they're like little savage terriers they just like snuffle around and bite shit and like they like aren't even visual and white sharks are either super apprehensive like tons of circles or you know the the, the terrifying thing which thankfully is quite rare is a breach um which we saw a whole bunch yeah but they also really selective on their breaches. Like they're only breaching on small seals. They only breach a certain time of day. Like you're, it's, you're it's talking very, about when they shoot out like a rocket, right, from underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They wow. Do, where I am now, Muscle Bay is kind of the place for that. Um, we filmed, I think, three or four, but there's been probably about twenty in the last few days. Um, and you can see them from where I'm saying. Like you can like see the seal out and see them jumping out there. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm getting a visual and I'm actually feeling a, a, because I felt dog, you know, dogs come behind me. I'm laying down and they lick the back of my neck. You know, sometimes it's a Rottweiler or a pit bull. And you're like, you know, if this thing wants to bite me and lock into my face, that can happen, you know, and uh, that's a very, very uh, surrendering experience. I've had that experience with some wild people during medicine journeys where anything can happen. So I'm just, feeling into a tiger shark just kind of licking the back of your neck you i don't know if you can share a screen i can show you the video because it's really interesting the lady that was in the water with us had been bitten by a shark three years before at this beach she was actually a, a tiger beach and she was you know really experienced but it was a traumatic place for her because she got bitten at the end of a shoot and it was kind of stupid how she got bitten and so it was like a weirdly energetic experience for her and she's from amazing free diver diver ninja and these two tiger sharks saw her and she started swimming back. And they're like, oh, really? And then they just targeted on her and she started backpedaling. So I swam up to make sure she was okay. And then they, like, they kind of branched off. And I turned around to swim back to the camera guy to grab a camera. And in me turning and swimming like that, both of them were like, plunk, and keyed onto me. And as I turned around, the one that like, comes up on my face here. And like, because you can see them kind of coming, you just... You know, you push them away like you would a drunk guy. You're like, hey, 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 just <laughs> go over there. And then they swam around with nothing. But both of those reactions were as a result of us acting like prey. Yeah. If you act like prey, yeah. you like prey. Yeah. If you act like another type of oh, yeah, you're cool. 
it's just like anything else in nature. Definitely later get get us that video. We'll put it into the the video part of the podcast so people can see it up on our on the video stuff, perhaps on YouTube. Yeah. That's amazing. So let me ask you: when it's all said and done, what are you? What what is your legacy here in this reality? You know, just someone who plays on that edge and it's gone through the depths of what you have. What what, what do you what do you want to be remembered for? Um, you know, someone said to me recently, you should write a book. I'm like, I don't think I've done anything epic yet. Like, I think I'm building up to something. And and Snake Farm was was a bit of that. You know, as a kid, I always wanted to make antivenomics, to make medicine, work with animals and snakes. And, you know, once we lost funding in the States, we closed down the veterinary company, I felt liberated because I'm like, you know, there's a patent filed, anyone can search this technology. There's a USDA application that's, you know, public record that people can see what it is. Um, there's a lot of, if anyone wants to continue this, they could pick it up and go with it. Um, whereas before I was always like worried about like, how do I get this information out and the studies out. So now I'm not sure. Like now I'm like trying to push the edges of reality. Like what is possible? Um, so my legacy, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. If, if people recognize animals aren't trying to kill them, that would be, you know, something that, you know, St. Francis was, was talking about. But, you know, really, I don't know. I, I, I haven't thought about legacy much. Um, the anti-venom thing would be cool if someone else did it, you know, and carried on and, and self-perpetuated. But I'm not sure. Definitely not TV and film. Like, that for me is a, is a tool to get to do fun shit, like, yeah. And, and so the, um, I don't know, it's a good question. Well, maybe it's something that you could think about. And when we start working together and actually going on some of these, you know, experiences physically together, we can bring this back around and have it part of the conversation. Cause I really want to expand more on future conversations with you and really get into some of the nitty gritty. Cause a lot of people listening to this, they're hearing some of these wild stories and it might be hard for them to actually have a, a a real you know comprehension of what you're talking about you know because it's it's so fantasy it's so out there um but we can start exploring that and i think through there we can maybe come up with some something together you know because that's yeah. where my mind goes and where my heart goes i can visualize these things no well my agents and my manager in la you know was represented by wme they're like how do we sell you like what do you do and i'm like i I don't know, man. Like, I can't be put in a box, and, and that's not a bad thing. But yeah, I appreciate that. I'd love to explore some of that because really the last two years since I've been super present, like it's literally day by day survival. And that's, you know, scary, but also liberating. Like if you're worried about food, you don't care about Facebook. <laughs> you know, like if you're worried about water, you don't really care about. And so it's like priorities shift dramatically. And so in the Zulu people and where I live, it's very present. Like it's a very present thing because we're just trying to get through today, and and that's I think struck off a bit. Yeah, I really appreciate you making the time. I know that it's uh, late over there. You just uh, you're out. Where, where exactly are you right now? A place called Muscle Bay. So it's about a third of the way up the coast, but it's a white shark hotspot. And we we got to see a four and a half meter, which is like a sixteen foot white shark, um, a couple of weeks ago. It's the biggest male tag in in the area. So and now all the sardines are kicking off. So we basically start driving north till we're almost at the equator. Wow, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Like I'm uh, I'm living vicariously within your consciousness, and I can't wait to see you out there. And I just want to thank Mr. Check 
for introducing us and it's uh it's so good to see your face and to feel you know your resonance and the vibratory field that you hold and again it takes me back to my childhood me being a you know snake fanatic and you know everyone loves dogs and cats which i which i love too i see their beauty in them but there's something about these species that don't talk don't make noises and are just sitting there and they're in a meditative state and they hold the keys and codes to a lot of our demons and our shadows and all those things and uh you know some people get it some people don't i i you know it's just it is what it is so i just want to honor you brother donald thank you thank you thank you for coming on wake the fake up and uh please be safe out there um but don't hold back no i mean, i can't wait to see you guys it's gonna be so awesome um and yeah the, the snake thing the funny thing is there's snakes everywhere yeah and like there's the big guns black mambas for me it's like the most conscious snake in the world and, and you'll meet us they, they're pretty incredible the, the uh, let's end on that the black mamba uh it's interesting because you know one of my idols growing up kobe bryant took on that persona as the black mamba tell me a yeah. little bit about the black mamba you know because it, it's they are are they the smartest snake in your opinion i would say so some people say the king cobra but i've worked with him now where one could have bit me on my hand and did this it kind of pointed with its nose where it could have bitten me and to telegraph it and didn't want to but it, it, it had that hand if i was like holy shit but um for me the most intelligent the fastest moving snake in the world the second largest venomous snake in the world but the terrifying thing is they can kill you in an hour like they just switch you off um and they are fast they're super super fast but you know, really, like when you look at them and you recognize that consciousness in, it really is like, it's more like an, an eagle than a, than a reptile. Like it's like a bald eagle where you see them looking and you're like, oh, wow. Wow, that's so wild. I can't imagine coming across one in real life and knowing that thing can move like 30 miles an hour and it knows it knows what it's doing. And it, what are they? They get to like 12, 13 feet? Yeah, the record, I'm trying to do a show on one now. And so the record is 4.6 meters, which is about 14 wow. feet. But I've got 10-foot mambas, and they're like bats. Like, they're huge. And I'll give you a little teaser. We had a mamba in our hospital for a year, like I was treating her mouth. And we released her, and now she won't leave. And she's living with us. And not like in our house now. She lives near our space, and she totally, she stands off, we stand off, and like we recognize her. We see her, and we like we acknowledge that she's there, and we walk around her. Her name's Funny Face. But she's hanging out with us now. Wait, 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 wait. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> That's the well, she got a funny face. So her face was all so we called a funny face. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So you had a mamba in, in your custody that you were treating and milking and what what have you. You let it go. Yeah. You let it go. Now it's just cruising around as part of like your almost every other day. You just see it. Oh hey, what's up? Like that? Well, we have a, a pit for puffers, which are like rattlesnakes. So it's low. Yeah. So she went in there, but she's like nine feet. Well, no, she's seven feet long. The walls are two feet high. So she can leave anytime she wants. So she just moved in there and then she cruises around the property. I mean, the property is huge. And then we have a forest cobra that I've like caught five times in our chicken coop and translocated. Eventually I was like, okay, guys, it just lives here now. So she comes <laughs> like we'll live in the rat room and it's occasionally take a couple chickens. But in recognizing the forest cobra, it's totally okay with us. And it's like, if you don't pick up a stick for some animals, they actually, you know, they, they really respectful. That's, that's the best ever. Wow. What a, what a wild, uh, reality. Let me, what are they eating? What are the mambas eating mainly? 
So that's the funny thing is this one, um, our mamas only eat rats. Um, we offer them chickens and other things, but they only like rats. Um, and so it's like rats, when they get bigger, rock rabbits, which are about this big, um, or cane rats, which are like nutria, like they, like that big. So where these mambas get hugely big is either a large rock rabbit population or large um, sugarcane population. But down in the south coast, there's a record of a 4.1 meter black mamba, which is like, that's like saying a hundred meter white shark. <laughs> like, no, yeah, that's like, crazy. I can't, I can't even imagine that. And it's so far, like, because when they get longer, they get so much fatter, just like sharks, you know, seven yeah. foot, eight foot, but when you get to 15, when you go to 16, it's like, so, so mamba that big, I, I'm, I'd love to see one. Because I know they exist. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And they're still moving at pretty good speed at that size. The weird thing is they're not so fast in a straight. They are, but where they go fast is through thorn bushes because for them, it's it's like they use it as propulsion. For us, it slows you down. So like in a straight line, they're quick, but through the bush, they are freaking lightning. You know, when you're a human floundering through thorns, the same as like a white shark in water. If you try and swim next to it, it's like... For sure. It makes things relative. Okay, well, that was a good visual for me. That was probably my highlight of everything. Everybody, listen, just imagine, you know, what you're scared about every day. Like, what kind of fears do you have? What kind of are you sitting in fight flight all the time because you're just worried about a bunch of, you know, old trauma or a bunch of future impending stuff? This freaking guy is running around with cobras and black mambas the size of your house and just saying what's up to them. That <laughs> That's probably the biggest take home you can get from this. Donald, again, Thank you so much. Gratitude, brother. You know, love you, honor you. I can't wait to sit in ceremony with you. We have a lot of ceremony to do together. We're both, we got to come up with a name. People that have survived the rattlesnake. Um, yeah. Let's come up with like a code name for that. Yeah. We got a lot of them. <laughs> have the best evening ever. Thank you, everybody, for joining this wild ride. This is a little bit different uh, take for Wake the Fake Up, but this was. Uh, everything that I wanted it to be and more. Big love, everyone. Thank you so much, brother. See you soon. Cheers, eh? Gratitude family for tuning in today and deep reverence to you all for dedicating your time to seeking knowledge and truth. This is what it's all about. You can find more of my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Google Podcasts. You can also find this on my website at wakethefakeup.com. Life is all about momentum. Please leave a review so I can hear your experiences and share with your friends, family, and anyone who needs to hear this message. This is a revolution of consciousness. This is just the beginning. I am all in. I'll be back next week for another epic conversation. Stay tuned, family. Big love.